For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. We are in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, in a title, a sermon entitled, The Golden Chain. This is part two. So we're working through the golden chain in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So we're back in our study now of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, uh, back in our consideration of what God, the work that God does in the salvation of an undeserving sinner. This is the work that God does, that work originating in the eternal counsels of the Godhead and that work terminating upon the glory of God into the ages. All of that as he conforms his people, a foreknown people, a predestined people, a redeemed people, as he conforms them into the image of his own beloved son. Conformed to the son's mind, conformed to the son's heart, conformed to his will, conformed to his conduct, even conformed to his very body, a glorious body, a glorified body, whereby we then, undeserving sinners, are accepted in the beloved to the praise of his grace, and whereby his son is worshipped as the firstborn among many brethren. It's in this way, right, and it's toward that, that ultimate purpose that God then through his providence, through his working in time, executing his his, his decrees, is said to be working then all things together for our good. All of our suffering, all of our difficulties, all of our decisions, even the decisions of sinful men, even the decisions that we make that are foolish, even our own sin, he is working it all together According to his providence, according to his decreed purpose, he is working it all together for our good. That's a promise we have from scripture. And it's a blessed promise, amen? A blessed, that despite how uncontrollable things may seem, or how many crooked lines I'm drawing, he's got a straight line drawn to an ultimate end by his grace, through his mercy, that he's working out according to his own providence, that will come to pass. Verse 28, and we know that all things, we know, All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So our salvation then, if you think with me, our salvation encompassing far more than a mere moment in time, encompassing far more than a mere decision, if you will, that salvation originates in eternity. Now put that together in your heart and mind for a moment. That salvation, our salvation originates in eternity. And it originates in eternity with a divine determination. That divine determination expressed in decree and the fruit of that decree is divine power and divine wisdom at work in providence to accomplish what he has resolved to bring to pass. It's an awesome thought that almighty God is working on behalf of his people to bring his plans for them to pass. So God does have a wonderful plan for your life right? He does. If you're in Christ by faith, if you've turned from sin to trust him, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) It's an awesome plan and he is going to bring it to pass. Now in part one, this brief series in our text, 
We're looking at the golden chain of salvation. And we began with the golden chain to consider how it is that God brings this plan to pass. How it is that God accomplishes his purpose. That path leads from the decree of God in the eternal counsels of the Godhead to the divine accomplishment of all that God has purposed through the person and work of his son. It's the path from decree to divine accomplishment and that path is described by a series of representative divine works in our text. I say divine works because they're all works of God. You notice there's nothing in there where you find you, okay? This is a representative list of God's works in time through his providence to bring to pass all of his decreed purpose. It's a path that begins in the eternal wisdom of God and ends upon the glorification of an undeserving sinner, all to the glory of his, of his grace. Verse 29, that path is exhibited here in the text. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see the path? The breadcrumbs laid out, so to speak. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Notice that it does not say, those whom he predestined, some of these he also called. And those whom he called, some of these he also justified. Doesn't say that, does it? Those whom he predestines, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, these he also glorifies. Do you see? An unbreakable, inviolable chain. A golden chain. The first of the English Puritans, William Perkins, referred to this series of connected works as that, as the golden chain. How is it that God accomplishes his purpose of exalting his son through the salvation of an undeserving sinner? He does so through a, through a golden chain of divine works. All of work of God that begins with foreknowledge, ends with the glorification of those whom he foreknew. A golden and unbreakable chain linked or connected works of God. All secured, that process, if you will, that path secured, made possible only through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ, our substitute. In John Murray's Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, Murray again describes the provision that God has made for our salvation as strikingly or astonishingly manifold. It appears in the eternal counsels of God, Murray says. It appears in the historic accomplishment of redemption by the work of Christ. It appears in the application of redemption continuously and progressively until it reaches its consummation in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it comprises a series of acts, a series of processes, if you will, each having its own distinct meaning, its own distinct function, its own distinct purpose in the action and in the grace and mercy of God. Now, what Perkins then described as the golden chain is a representative list of a, a part of a larger list, if you will, of what we call the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. In part one of our study of the golden chain, we considered the the importance or the intentionality of that order, the importance that order has in the order of salutis or in the order of our salvation, in that order of that series of divine acts. And then we considered the first of those saving acts of God's, um, that the first of those saving acts from which all other saving acts flow, or the seed from which all of those other saving acts grow, and the first of those divine acts listed by Paul there is God's foreknowledge. Verse 29 for whom he foreknew. 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in our last sermon then on this text, we proved, we considered from the text, how God's foreknowledge involves far more than a simple prior knowledge of future events. There's a heresy called open theism. And in open theism, the heresy of open theism, God's learning how things go. Through time, things happen, things develop, and God figures it out as things go, right? And sort of watching history unfold. He can see the future, right? But he's learning as time goes by. Open theism is a ridiculous and absurd heresy. God is the one who wrote the script, right? God is sovereign. What does it mean when the Bible says that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. God does not work some things after the counsel of his own will. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. In particular here from scripture, the salvation of the sinner to his eternal glory. God doesn't merely see things that are going to come. It's not merely foreseen knowledge. It's foreknowledge. God determined before the foundation of the world to set his particular and distinguishing love upon a chosen people. Not because of anything that he had foreseen in them. That's going to be the point of chapter 9. Before the children, having done anything good or bad, God determined, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Not for anything that he had foreseen in them, but because he had decreed it to be so, he foreknew them. Now God certainly foresees everyone and everything, but not everyone is predestined. Not everyone is called, not everyone is justified, not everyone is glorified. Therefore, not all men are foreknown in the way that verse 28, verse 29, verse 30 say that they are. Rather, it is only for those in whom he has taken particular interest, those upon whom he has placed a particular love, a particular delight. And it's for this reason that we look uh, at the word foreknown in this sense to be synonymous with foreloved. If you are a Christian, think with me. If you're a Christian, it is for the ultimate reason. Let this sink into your heart and mind, right? Meditate on this forever. If you're a Christian, it is for the ultimate reason that God in eternity determined to set his love upon you. And if you think for a moment, for a moment about <laughs> all the sin you've been involved in, all the rebellion, the ways in which you have rebelled against God, if that were displayed across the sky for everyone to see, think about for a moment the shame of all of that, the rebellion of all that, and God determined, knowing that that's the case, determined to redeem you in his son that you might be to the praise of his grace into the ages. If you're in Jesus Christ, that's the reality of your salvation that should cause great confidence, great boldness in the, in the Christian. That love is not in response to anything that you've done. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. That love is not in response or contingent upon anything about you. You're just not that lovable. <laughs> the source of that love is not found in you. That love originates with God alone, who is himself love. That love finds its source in the sovereign, unconditional, electing grace of God. And he has chosen us according to the good pleasure of his own will. Now notice next with me. 
In the order of Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, in the golden chain, next in the path, if you will, of salvation is the word predestination. Those whom God has foreknown with a particular distinguishing love, he predestines, and he predestines with a purpose. Verse 29, for whom he foreknow, foreknew, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, there's no break in the chain. There's no way to pull that link apart. Those whom he foreknew, that group, that group that he foreknew, those he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, according to Paul, in a similar statement found in Ephesians chapter 1, we are predestined there, Ephesians chapter 1, according to the good pleasure of his will. That word, the word is essentially used in reference to a predetermination. Predestined or predetermined according to the good pleasure of his will. To determine beforehand is what the word means. To ordain or to decree beforehand that which will be brought to pass. That's what the word simply means. As may already be evident to you, there's a subtle distinction then and an obvious distinction between foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew, and predestination. These two concepts, though, are frequently linked together. He foreknew a distinct group that he had particular interest in, and that particular group which he had foreknown he predestines to be conformed into the image of his son. There's really no way out of the golden chain, if you will, to take that text to mean anything else, right? The text is clear if you break it apart. These two concepts linked frequently together, and this morning I've planned for us to consider several texts that help us to understand predestination and to see how those concepts fit together. The first of them is found in Acts chapter 4. Turn with me there. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been arrested. They're arresting, arrested for healing a man, preaching the gospel. They've been dragged now before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin have commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. The, those, those who believe these truths have to be told to be quiet. Right? <laughs> have you ever thought about that for a moment? Most professing Christians today have to be told to speak up. But people, listen, when people embrace these truths, they have to be squelched. And ultimately, ultimately, they're going to have to be put to death because they're not going to shut up, right? Here, they have to be told to be quiet, and they're not going to do it. Verse 23, being let go, they went to their own companions, back to the church as it were, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard it, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, they respond by praying. Do you see? They respond by praying, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now think with me. What is the basic essence of their prayer? Here's the essence of their prayer. That our God, our God, the one who has made all things, the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, 
the one who wields omnipotence is also the one who is sovereign over all our circumstances. <laughs> is also the one who is sovereign over all things that have come to pass. In other words, God knows beforehand. He's decreed the end from the beginning. And here, these circumstances in which the disciples find themselves, they know to be the decreed will of God toward them. And in that, brothers and sisters, there's great confidence. Listen, he is the one who declares the end from the beginning. That's Isaiah 46, right? From ancient things, or from ancient times, things that are not yet done saying, my counsel will stand, I will do all my pleasure. And they look back, in thinking of that, they look back at the second psalm on the lips of David and see in their circumstances that God has ordained this. God has decreed this. God is sovereign over it. And not only that God has foreordained their circumstances, but also the utter folly, the utter absurdity of anyone who opposes him, opposes his Christ or opposes his people. They will not prevail. Right? He who sits in the heavens, Psalm 2 goes on to say, he who sits in the heavens will laugh. He holds them in deep derision. Look at verse 27. For, they make the connection now to their circumstances. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Well, I thought we were completely free to do whatever we want to do. Yeah, you're going to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> do you think those people did whatever they wanted to do? Yes, they did. They took him, as Acts 2 says, by lawless hands and crucified him. Now the disciples, think with me about, about the context, the disciples didn't conceive of the foreknowledge of God to be pri uh, merely prior knowledge of future events. They knew that God was the one who determined those events and brought them to pass. When the enemies of God array themselves with all of their irrational zeal, when the enemies of God array themselves with all of their vile hatred, with all of their supposed strength, with all of their supposed wisdom, all they can ever accomplish is exactly what God has already determined should come to pass. Do you see? And he's determined it to be done by them, or through them, but whatever God has determined is what is going to come to pass. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. Or, in this case, we're talking about predestination. Not only the end by which the Lord Jesus Christ would come, but all the means by which Jesus Christ would come to that determined end, appointed by, decreed by, our God who is sovereign. From the traitor's kiss to his pierced side, to the tomb that he's buried in, all according to the determined will of Almighty God. Verse 28, the word for purpose there is bule. It refers to God's will or God's intention to do whatever your hand and your will, whatever your intention determined before. You see, determined before translates praorizo, or predestined. Praorizo means predestined. To, de to do whatever your hand and your will, your intention, predetermined or predestined to come to pass. They gathered together to do what God wanted, to do what God decreed, to do what God had determined should come to pass. 
Brothers and sisters, our circumstances are not merely known by God. Our circumstances aren't simply known by God. Our circumstances are decreed by God, predestined by God. Our circumstances are determined by God. And he is able to cast down any who oppose. And he is, to, he is capable, able to raise up, to lift up any who humble themselves to him, toward him in faith. There is no reason to fear. Do you see? Why did the disciples come this way praying in Acts chapter 4? Because they knew that God was sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. And they turned to God who is sovereign in those circumstances. And they claim his goodness. And they pray in this case for boldness. Look at verse 29. It's impossible for his will to be thwarted. It's impossible for his purpose to be overturned. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus by giving us fruit in our preaching of the gospel for the sake of your name, God. Please. Grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. You see, where a knowledge of these things lays a direct path to boldness or confidence for the Christian. The one who embraces these things in faith has no reason to shrink back. Their confidence is built up. Boldness is built up. In other words, if there is a fear of man, if there is a shrinking back, we need to meditate on these truths. Meditate on these things. The disciples understood this and they prayed, Lord, help us to bear this in mind that we may with all boldness preach your word. The doctrine of God's predestination refers to God's decree, the determination of God to bring about all the ends that he has purposed by the means that he has determined to accomplish them. And that leads to great confidence on the part of the Christian. Let me give you an example of this in time. Uh, if you will... Quickly, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Just bear with me. And just an example of this very thing. Because in the, you know, the so-called debate over free will, and the, the, the frivolous or absurd charge that somehow God's predestination or God's election or God being sovereign over all things somehow makes us puppets and he's the puppet master. Just a, a ridiculous, ridiculous thoughts on, on these um, glorious doctrines. There's a mystery how God accomplishes all his will uh, through our free actions. Um, that's where the mystery lies. But it is nonetheless God's sovereign will that is accomplished in every case. And here's another example of this in Isaiah chapter 10. Look there beginning at verse 5. God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So what is Assyria? Assyria is the rod of his anger. Assyria, that nation, is a staff in God's hand. In other words, who is wielding the actions of these wicked men? God. God is wielding them like a staff. And against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet, Assyria does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, 
But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty fools. Now notice it's not just Assyria, the nation he wields, but the people of that nation, including the king. For he says, verse 13, this king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? In Daniel chapter 4. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people, and I have robbed their treasury, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand is found like a nest in the riches of the people. As one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. And God says, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? <laughs> Shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up. Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. <laughs> God is sovereign. Amen. Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Our confession, chapter 3, article 1, says this. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever that come to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. He's not, you know, he's not offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his degree. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, in the context, Paul is con uh, contrasting base human wisdom or the wisdom of this world, which is coming to nothing, and contrasting that with the wisdom of God found in the gospel. Verse 6. However, Paul says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, spiritual, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. In other words, wisdom that has been previously hidden from sight. Uh, wisdom involved in the gospel, previously hidden from plain sight, now revealed. The hidden wisdom, verse 7, which God ordained, praorizo, predestined, same word, the wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul explains that the gospel through which God saves the sinner, the gospel that we preach, is that which God determined, predestined, foreordained in eternity before the ages. In the eternal counsels of God, he preordained, predetermined, predestined the gospel. 
But as it is written, verse 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared. There it is, right? God predetermined. Not merely seeing future events, but predetermining future events. God has prepared them for those who love him. Even more specific to the context of Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God's predestination even includes those he would save through the preaching of that gospel. Chapter 3, article 3, listen. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined. They are foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. In other words... That which is predestined, the destiny determined beforehand by God, involves those who go to heaven and those who do not. In the the scope of God's predestination are those who go to heaven and those who do not. The destination in view with predestination, when considering the doctrine of predestination as it relates to sinners, is heaven or hell. The determination is heaven or hell. The primary concern of predestination then is the difference between election and reprobation. Those whom God chooses to call to himself and those whom he leaves to continue in their sin. Election then has to do with God's choosing beforehand. Those whom he predestines for eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace or those whom he leaves in their sin to the praise of his eternal justice. Ephesians chapter 1, turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. That doctrine rails against, bristles against the pride of our humanity. That we ourselves are somehow autonomous, frankly, and not creatures. <laughs> right? We ourselves attempting to, to raise ourselves above our creatureliness as those who are made by God. And to elevate ourselves as uh, that cherub, Satan did, <laughs> to the position of the Most High. So our... In human wisdom, we rail against that truth, and yet God says it clearly here in his word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we're, we're to praise him for all the blessings that he's given us. Right? Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It just simply does not get any closer. And there are multiple, any clearer. There are multiple places in scripture that say the exact same thing. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before anything existed. Before you were made. Before you had ever done anything good or evil. For the purpose that, verse 4, we, that group that he foreknew, that group that he predestined, that we should be holy and without blame before him. He decreed through his son to save a people for the glory of his son, glory of his own name. They would be conformed into the image of his own son 
The word translated he chose in verse 4 is eklegamai. It's where we get our word elected from, he chose. It's an aorist, for you folks studying Greek. It's in the middle voice, which means that he chose for himself. God chose for his or on his own behalf. In fact, Paul pushes divine election and God's saving plan and purpose back before creation into eternity past when only God himself existed. Now notice the language of predestination in the fulfillment of this purpose. Verse 5. In love, having predestined us. Praorizo. There it is again. He predetermined that we would be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Notice now, predestined praorizo means determined before. Not praorao, which means to see before. He certainly could have used that word if he intended that word. But praorizo, which means to be decided, determined before. And solely according to the good pleasure of his will. So here's the question then, right? Does God look down the corridor of time to foreseen faith and then he chooses based upon man's faith or man's decision? That's the prescient or Arminian, Pelagian view. Knowledge before. Or does God determine beforehand those who would place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? And they end up putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because it was predestined by God that they would do so. God calls them to himself, giving them life from death, by which he grants them repentance and faith, by which they turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust to their justification. The scriptures would say that God determines, God decides, and he does that for himself. God, before the foundation of the world, before time began, before you were born, before you had ever opportunity to do good or evil, entirely apart from any unforeseen uh, good or evil in you, God decided then. God determined then whether he would bring you to faith in his son or not bring you to faith in his son. Your eternal destiny as an adopted son of God is predestined. Notice how personal and individual these blessings are. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. It's through the person and work of Christ that I am redeemed, that you are redeemed, that I am forgiven of my sin. Verse 5, I have been adopted as a son. Verse 11, in him I have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, I trusted him. It's the first active verb there. I trusted him when I heard the word of truth. I believed him and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, Thelema, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed, he planned. He set it in place before, is what it literally means. In other words, he predestined. He purposed in himself. That, verse 10, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained. You notice the passive sense of all those verbs as well. We were made. We have obtained. We, right? In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined. There it is again, praorizo, according to the purpose of him who works 
all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him then, verse 13, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, brothers and sisters, who makes you to differ from another? Why are you here this morning and someone else is out there on the Lord's day with no concern with the Lord whatsoever, right? Who makes you to differ from another? Is it because you're so smart? Is it because you're so lovely, so lovable? (laughs) We've already established that not to be the case. Is it because you're so good? You're so righteous? Why isn't it? You've done the good thing. They've done the bad thing. You've done the righteous thing. They've done the unrighteous thing. Why isn't it? Because you're more righteous. Right? Can you see how then, that's a, that's a work. It is not salvation. It is by grace, through faith. Not of yourselves, It is a work of God, lest anyone should boast against him. Who makes you to differ from another? God does. It's all a work of God. Everything necessary to our salvation originates in a sovereign decree of God, carried out by a sovereign work of God in God's providence. It begins with a sovereign love of God towards us in Christ, expressed in predestination in eternity as sons. And it ends with the praise of his glory as he brings to pass all those things which he has determined. In other words, it is all of grace. All of grace. All according to his own good pleasure. In consideration of these texts, listen. Not only was the death of Christ predestined for the purpose of our salvation, and it's clear from the Bible that it was so. Not only was the means of his suffering and the means of his death predestined. We find that all over the word of God. But that message by which his death is revealed to sinners is also predestined as all, all as the means by which God would save those individuals that he has predestined to be conformed in the image of his son to the praise of the glory of his grace. His predestination extends to all things. Verse 29, Romans 8, 29, for whom, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his own son. As we've seen before, that is so that we might be sumorphos, formed with or morphed into the image of his son, so that we might be conformed to his image, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That purpose of God communicated in verse 29, nothing short of the radical and complete transformation of our person with the purpose of conforming us, our inner man, our outer man, even our lowly bodies, into the perfect image or likeness of God's own son. In our nature, our moral purity, our thinking, our affections, our desires, our imaginations, our heart, our character, our will, our conduct, all conformed. We've been predestined, predetermined to be conformed into the image of his son. And brothers, Sisters, if our salvation is rooted and grounded in the eternal counsels of God, wrought in time by omnipotent power, omnipotent, omniscient wisdom, omnisapient wisdom, at work through God's providence to accomplish all God's pleasure, not a single one of his decrees being thwarted or undermined, then it is absolutely, inviolably certain to those who are his if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is well placed. 
That leads us here, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and who can be against us? Can you imagine the disciples in that passage in Acts chapter 4 being arrested by the Sanhedrin, drug into court? Oftentimes they were beaten. Being drugged there with this understanding. Having embraced these truths by faith. If God can be, if God is for us, then do your worst. Who can stand against us? If we understand and embrace these truths through faith, then that gives the Christian great confidence. Great, have you ever thought, the Lord Jesus Christ crucified in Jerusalem, caused a stir in that city. After the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified, Stephen is martyred on the Temple Mount, stoned to death. And the disciples go everywhere preaching the word of God. What gives them such boldness? What gives them such great confidence? It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for these truths. They had seen him raised from the dead. And brothers and sisters, we have that same account in this word given to us by God. We should have great boldness, great confidence. It's an embrace of these things that should lead us in confidence in Jesus Christ to live for him. Calvin said this, for there is not a more effectual means of building up faith than giving our open ears to the election of God, which the Holy Spirit seals upon our heart while we hear, showing us that it stands in the eternal and immutable goodwill of God toward us. His will toward us, working all things together for our good, is as immutable as he is immutable. So that, therefore, it cannot be moved or altered by any storms of the world, by any assaults of Satan, by any changes, by any fluctuations or weaknesses of the flesh. For our salvation is then sure to us when we find the cause of it in the breast of God. The fact that our salvation lies within the eternal counsels of God in his breast, so to speak, in his heart, so to speak, and not in our own, then it is sure and it is certain, amen? And not only is it sure and it is certain, but it should give every cause for us to not shrink back from any act of obedience, from any act of preaching the gospel, right? From any circumstance. We, we can enter that circumstance, faith in Jesus Christ, because God has ordained it from the time, from time before the world began in eternity and he's working all things together for our good and it will terminate upon his glory and our glorified bodies one day in eternity. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who is predestined that it should be so. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for these glorious truths. Uh, thank you for the fact, Lord, that it is all of grace. And if it was something that we could in any way merit by our own decision or our own work or by something that we did, we, we would be doomed. There's no way, Lord, for us to persevere or preserve ourselves in that for even a moment. The truth of the matter is we would never, never turn unless you graciously revealed yourself to us in your calling and in the work, person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one who gives life from the dead. We thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, this golden chain 
and help us to meditate on these glorious truths as we seek to live for you. And maybe they be the, the root and the ground of great boldness and great confidence as we preach the gospel, as we live for you, as we face difficult circumstances. And may it be to your praise that we face them as our brothers and sisters in the first century did in Acts chapter 4. I'm praying to you for boldness and following you in obedience as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ until you call us home. We love you and thank you for these things. Bless these things to our hearts and minds for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.